Welcome to the Collective Voice of Health IT, a Weedy podcast. Hi everyone, it's Michael McNutt with Weedy. To continue the conversation regarding AI and healthcare, here's a panel from our recently concluded national conference in Washington, D.C. Building your organization's AI strategy. Look before you leap. The moderator is Ed Hafner, Weedy's board chair. And the panelists are Dr. Kevin Larson, Senior Vice President of Clinical Innovation with Optum, Derek Higgins, Head of Enterprise Data Science and Artificial Intelligence with HCSC, and Jared Stahl, Senior Director, Advanced Analytics and AI with the Mayo Clinic. So if we can go kind of go down the line, starting with Kevin, just talk a little bit about your responsibilities in your role. Sure. Kevin Larson. Um, I'm a physician. I'm actually on the Optum side of the United Healthcare, United Health Group. So for those of you that um, are less familiar with Optum, we uh, are one of the largest providers in the country now. We actually have somewhere around 100,000 clinicians on, that are either employed or under value-based contract with us. We also do a lot of technology solutions for us and other payers, including for UHC. Um, my role there is uh, a strategic investment in clinical decision support at point of care. So we have a fully fire native solution that we integrate into um, many different EHRs to bring clinical practice guidelines right to the point of care. Um, we're lucky in that the investment is primarily clinical. It's not really a prior auth now. It's we believe that if you get hypertension and heart failure control right by the guidelines, that the care that the cost will follow. Um, a little bit of uh, context here um, on a previous. Uh, uh, part of my career, I was a CMIO of a health system, and then I was at the federal government uh, at the Office of National Coordinator for Health IT and at CMS. Uh, my role in AI, uh, our decision support solution uses clinical AI, so we work with um, our large data systems and our, our data scientists to do disease progression uh, prediction models and put those into point of care along with the rest of our decision support. Hey, I'm Derek. I'm Derek Higgins. Um, I head up data science and AI solutions at HCSC. Um, talked a little bit about uh, my team and our work earlier today, but uh, we work on stuff related to prior authorization, which is theme of the week, as well as clinical risk stratification, claims processing, member engagement, and lots of different things. I feel like we're kind of um, in this strange space where we, we we're blessed because we have so much data throughout the. Uh, um, the healthcare journey of our members from claims to lab to clinical. Uh, but it's all, uh, you know, none of it, none of it is easy to work with. And so integrating that and using that in intelligent ways is, is uh, the challenge we're, we're focused, we're faced on faced with every day. Hi everyone. My name is Jared Stahl. I am the senior director of analytics and AI under the finance umbrella at Mayo Clinic, uh, which is comprised of supply chain, HR, um, as well as revenue cycle. Um, I've been in the healthcare industry for about 17 years, all on the operational side, supporting and enablement capacities, both in advanced analytics and artificial intelligence, as well as process automation. Um, we're faced with similar challenges, I think, uh, as mentioned. Um, a, lot, a lot of these discussions have been circling around some of those same themes and uh, as we get into some of these examples, I'll say I, I think as a provider, we feel uh, that we're in the same boat uh, as we collaborate and, and work with some of our strategic partners, as, as well as all of the uh, internal think tanks uh, that we represent uh, from a Mayo Clinic perspective, both 
and our platform as well as our research shield. So great to be here. And you can notice we have an all-star panel. Pretty cool, right? All right, so let's talk a little bit about your AI solutions. Uh, imagine many of them are based on either machine learning or natural language processing or both. And Derek, you presented the, the session to us earlier, which we, was great. So I thought maybe we'd start with you. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I, I have worked in machine learning, natural language processing for a long time. Uh, back in the day, I got my PhD in linguistics, which is kind of a thing that people did if they want to get into natural language processing. Now people in NLP get into it through computer science. So the field has really evolved a lot since I started. I, throughout my career, I've worked on stuff like um, scoring of essays for um, uh, testing companies and and uh, and stuff related to media analytics. Um, but, you know, similar problems in the healthcare space. Um, so lot, lots of opportunities to extract information from medical records and, and um, uh, other information sources to inform the decisions we make. Um, but as far as machine learning versus rules versus NLP, I, I try to um, keep the team disciplined about just being um, outcomes focused. Um, data scientists come out of a graduate program often and they want to do the the hot new thing, you know, use a large language model, build a deep learning model, whatever. Uh, it's great that people know how to do that. It's not always the best solution. Uh, and and rule-based solutions can have some real advantages in some cases in terms of interpretability and um, maintainability. So, um, you know, many things we do are based on machine learning. They have their advantage, advantages as well and that they can learn from data and are, are um, require less manual maintenance in terms of SMEs. So it, it depends on the use case. We, we can, um, you know, we're here to serve. And, and Derek, the actual, actual use case or solution, um, I think prior auth was the one you mentioned. Yeah, so um, prior authorization, automation of uh, approvals and providing uh, insight to clinicians ab about information in medical records that's relevant to making the determinations they need to make. Um, stuff in the claims processing space that I mentioned this morning, uh, we have models that flag claims that are at risk for some sort of a negative outcome, like a performance guarantee penalty or a prompt pay penalty. So if we can use that for routing, use that to inform claims operators in real time. That's always helpful. Thank you. Uh, let's talk to the other payer, Kevin. So um, I have some insight into some of our payer solutions. Uh, I'll start with the work that we're doing, which is very much aimed at the provider. And uh, the work there is to look at um, uh, using kind of a screening model, if you're used to how we think about screening tests. If there's something that the doctor or the patient could know earlier, uh, and then there's actually an intervention that will change the course of the disease. How could we, how could we find that when it's really hard for providers to find? So our very first model looks at people with diabetes and says, of these people, what is the 10% most likely to progress to chronic kidney disease uh, in the next three years? And so that, if, if you're a clinician, you know that that's hard to tell. You have some clues there, but you, it's not really that obvious. If we can find those people, we know that there are interventions we can do that will slow their progression to chronic kidney disease. So we've taken the clinical data, uh, so CCD data primarily, um, from electronic health records and in large volumes, and we do um, uh, machine learning models. We haven't yet done any of these with the new generative AI models, but machine learning models to then be able to say, this is the group of people most likely to progress uh, in that disease. And we don't pick every disease. Like I, I'm not interested in Alzheimer's, 
because there's nothing I can do. So if I alert a doctor that this patient's more likely to have Alzheimer's disease, there's no treatment, there's no change. So we're really focused on where is there something that can be done. And because we're already building a point of care decision support solution, we have a place to put that in. Uh, we'll get into more of this later, but the um, because we're giving recommendations to providers, um, uh, we are FDA regulated basically. So we have a whole set of things that we follow to be really clear that um, that we have a quality management system, that things are transparent. We're tracking the guidelines coming from ONC and CMS around how AI in healthcare uh, is used. That we really want to a safe, reliable, transparent approach to this uh, set of uh, information that we bring to providers. Uh, Derek, you were right. Kevin is kind of a provider. Perhaps you're sandwiched. <laughs> okay, let's go to you, Jared. So I, I'd like to rewind a little bit to uh, three years ago when, when I was essentially asked to put together this uh, automation and AI team within the administrative space, um, non-clinical areas that I had mentioned in my introduction, and really what we wanted to do was experiment in a, in a safer environment to prove the point for the organization uh, the, with, with the intent to migrate to the practice and, and to give those examples to them and best practices, the components that we leverage. And so we found a, a low, a low co complex, high impact use case, which was essentially bringing claim status into Epic. Uh, so hybridizing a solution uh, where we were essentially grabbing that from uh, an API and fashioning it in the right way to hybridize it as a interoperable solution with, with our EMR. Um, we got more complex to the point where we were creating logins for RPA to go into Epic and, and, and make more advanced decisions, carving through different pathways uh, to the point now where we're running a lot of document processing examples. One great example are all the prior auth faxes that we get into our manual uh, queues that individuals are managing. So now we're running those through optical character recognition, machine learning models, starting them off with, with the initial process with a certain ratio of human versus automation interaction. But as the model matures, that, that decreases over time as it learns the different documents that are coming in. Another great example I would say in the NLP range would be we, we get about 1.2 million phone calls into our our back office call center per year. And we run that through an NLP model to do sentiment analysis. We also have real-time machine learning models that actually intervene uh, with our call center agents while they're on the phone with the patients to say, this isn't going so well. You need to pivot. You need to use more words that are expressing empathy or you're not answering their question. It's, it's giving that to them in real time. Uh, and that's produced a lot of uh, positive results in terms of our mission, which is the needs of the patient come first. Um, it also helps with training, uh, creating new modules for our agents to be able to serve them better and faster in different ways. And then the extensions of our process mining uh, uh, expansions from process automation, you know, we're looking at how we could ingest large data sets to reveal opportunities both in workflow and automation and augmentation. So it's really the trifecta, process mining, task mining, and communications mining. Um, the age-old problem still exists even before technology like AI and generative AI have come on the, on the scene, which is you need good quality data to be able to make this an accurate and actionable insight that's coming out of this. 
Jerry, two reactions. First of all, being able to have something listening to customer service and, oh my gosh, it's not going well and pivot. So many people outside of healthcare could use that, right? Um, okay. Uh, and also, uh, I've, I've learned robotic process automation, very, very big in the provider space and reacting to the AI machine learning and to be able to implement automation is a very cool extension. So I like that stuff. So we'll stay with you, Jared. Uh, talk about some of your challenges you've had in implementing uh, your AI solutions. Yeah, I think the one I just alluded to is probably one of the biggest ones. So as we've proven the point in our AI automation suite, the the practice has taken notice. And it was it was kind of a funny story I tell because we were quietly working on our team on the admin space. And when generative AI and chat GPT came on the scene, suddenly our team became the most popular group at Mayo. Um, and we didn't really realize right away. Um, and so I think we, we've tried a lot of opportunities to get grassroots movements, considering top-down approaches to how we identify where we want to go and how we want to transform and innovate. Um, and, and one of the things you'll see outside of healthcare is that the really mature industries almost always use process task and communications mining to reveal those insights that we're collecting, you know, from our end users right now. We're doing time-based studies, all this manual work, you know, that, that uh, standard Six Sigma huge wall of Post-it notes, right? This is the electronic version of that. And it's more accurate, right? You might have someone tell you, well, I do this X amount of times per day. Well, maybe that's just because they did it 10 times yesterday. Mm -hmm. That doesn't mean it has the accurate depiction of what you're trying to innovate. But in the technology, if you have the appropriate data set, it does. And it leads you in that right direction where it might find the needle in the haystack from a process mining perspective. Task mining can put it under a microscope and then you can parse it out on how you want to action it through the technology that you have. Thank you. Uh, Derek, how about you? Uh, some challenges. Yeah, I guess I'll, I'll highlight three. So um, one is one that I alluded to in my introduction, which is just data fragmentation. You know, we've got a bunch of data about our members and we have different data for each of our members. We have lots of claims data. You know, we may have lab data from certain sources and not from other sources. We may have clinical data from some uh, providers and not from other providers or certain lines of business, not from other, other lines of business. So trying to come up with a, a canonical model that allows us to um, analyze the data that we have for all of our members is, is non-trivial. Um, Second big problem, very common to kind of, a, especially in, in legacy industries um, using AI is the last mile problem. We can build a model, we can deploy an API, somebody's got to call the API. <laughs> and so that often requires upstream changes to claims processing systems or something else. Right. And, and so planning for and executing on those kind of technical handshakes can, can be really hard. Um, and then the third one, uh, I guess, is kind of build versus buy, uh, because obviously um, we want to solve problems. We want to solve big problems that have an, an impact and help our company be more effective and intelligent. Um, but at a certain point, if the problems are big enough and common enough to, uh, to similar organizations, market solutions are going to grow up to solve those across the board. And so we always have difficult decisions to make. You know, do we invest time in building something? Do we wait for the marketplace to mature and then, and then invest in those market solutions? I can only imagine what to put all that energy into building an API based on ML and nobody's using it. Oh, that must be a killer. Yeah, yeah. Okay. That's, that's part of the job. You got you to gotta throw things away. Yeah. <laughs> right. All right, Kevin, your thoughts. Um, yeah, so many challenges. 
Uh, so one of the challenges uh, is really bridging the research and development into operations. Um, and for that, you know, we had to, we have an R and D team and the R and D team was working on this. They're actually not used to delivering a product into the world. The product teams don't know ML. So we had to figure out how to connect our product team and our R and D team and then work out what are the, who's responsible for what and then how, how are they responsible through time? So we had to think about machine learning operations and who pays attention to model drift and who does the tuning for a new organization. So, for example, we've, we've deployed this in a Florida market and now in a Colorado market. And in Florida, surprise, surprise, people are older than in Colorado. So it turns out we have to actually tune our model to the population that we're in because the, the older Florida population isn't the same as the Colorado population. Um, another challenge has been uh, shifting under uh, data underneath us. So we're investing in strategic data platforms and we are just pivoting from our kind of prior data platform to our new data platform. Well, we have a model in production. What do we do when the underlying data is now suddenly in a new format, in a new data model, in a new place? Do we have to pause? Do we have to, you know, how, how do we do continuous operations while the data underneath is going through strategic shifts? I think the one of the biggest challenges we've had is the regulatory uncertainty. So both the FDA and the ONC have, within the time we've been developing this, come out with guidance, but not anything formal or final. There's no case law. There's no history. There's no, we don't know what people are going to do or say in this particular space. So again, we're being as kind of careful and conservative and, and dotting all the I's and crossing all the T's that we can do uh, while the, we're waiting for more regulatory certainty than what we have. Thank you. Uh, I've been waiting to ask this question after we had a session yesterday to this panel. I can't wait to see the reaction. Raise your hand if you hallucinate. <laughs> No one. Okay, let's go ahead and ask it differently. Uh, let's talk about the accuracy of your ML models. Um, you know, putting out not the right answer and trying to improve it. Can you talk a little bit about that? Let's start with you, Kevin. I, if you would have heard, I was. Um, I was in the hallway over here talking to the data science team about just exactly this. Like, how, how do we think about this in a repeatable way? Um, I think one of the unique aspects for us is we are um, in the doctor's office with an individual person. So I'm not predicting a based on, about a population. I'm not forecasting the weather for a community. I'm saying for this particular person, uh, I think they're at high risk. Now, the, the issue is what I'm predicting is a possible endpoint. And if I prevent it, I don't actually know if you were going to have it or if you weren't, right? So, so we have to have a lot of clinical people involved in this and a lot of um, kind of ethics and regulatory oversight to say, okay, where, where does this, where is the bounds of, of bias? Where do we think about the ethics of this? Where do we think about the fairness of this? And we have all those layers in our internal uh, governance. 
And for our purposes, um, uh, precision and recall is what my data scientists call it. As a clinician, I think about positive predictive value and sensitivity and specificity. Basically, I don't ever want to label someone wrong and say this is a person that is at high risk when they're not. So that's the, the particular frame that we're taking. Um, uh, again, trying to be as conservative as possible, not trying to overgeneralize or, or overassign. Um, we're not doing this as an efficiency. We're doing this as a new insight. I think of it like... Um, I think of it like lane assist in your car. Like when is there something that the computer can pay attention to and say, hey, pay attention over here. I'm not telling you what to do about it. I'm not saying that you're going to be in a crash instantly, but there's something to pay attention to, doctor. Look over there. Okay, thank you. Derek? Yeah, I, I guess um, I completely agree. The, um, the, metric, the right metric is use case dependent. Um, uh, I think this this whole discussion is also kind of adjacent to the topic of governance and how we evaluate models before we put them into production. Um, and and um, as with many things, if you're not sure exactly what you're doing, um, one strategy is to throw a committee at it. And so, you know, we've sort of uh, done done a little bit of that internally in that, you know, we, um, we know there's some s subjectivity around thresholds and metrics and evaluating models. We want to make sure we have the right people looking at it and asking difficult questions when we have a model under consideration. So we do have a committee process that we put models um, under consideration through. Um, and then the last one, because you mentioned hallucination, like I think everything gets harder when you're talking about um, generative AI, where you're not producing a categorical judgment or a, a number, like a, a a, a regression prediction, it's some structured artifact, it's a bunch of text or it's a picture or something like that. How do you evaluate whether that is fit for purpose and accurate or not? So I'll stop there. <laughs> I, I think Derek hallucinates a little. Okay, it gets to go, Jared. Yeah, I, I would echo a lot of the comments that were already made. You know, we also have committees for evaluation and would 100% agree. It's all, it's, it's use case specific. Um, I, you know, a strong consideration on cross-validation um, parameter checking, but also um, what what's the ultimate outcome? So does this need to be directionally correct from the decision-making standpoint of what you're looking to do with the insight, or does it have to be very accurate? Um, and so I think those are some of the things that go into uh, our, our considerations as we go along. Of course, again, back to the point I brought up previously, data governance uh, as well as it relates to what you're ingesting and what you're expecting to see as a result of that. Okay. Um, Derek, since you mentioned ChatGPT, um, are you using any third-party solutions like ChatGPT to augment your AI solutions today? Yeah, we are looking at large language models. I think there's a lot of potential there, and especially in sort of customer service, the customer support applications. Um, right now we have a lot of um, again, pretty fragmented systems that um, our customers support uh, staff have to consult in order to answer members' questions. And so I, I think um, one of the great strengths of some of the emerging generative AI technology is the ability to interact conversationally with disparate information sources that sit on the back, back end and make it easier for customer advocates, for example, to like get, get a, an answer and a pointer to where that answer was found so that they can, they can, they can answer members' questions. Um, I think there are, of course, important questions around privacy and security to be addressed when you're dealing with these, these new technologies. We have selected um, some, some tools that can 
fully be isolated within our um, uh, secure environment. So no data ever goes outside our secure environment or is shared with third parties. So it's not used to train large language models. It's not stored in any infrastructure that is not approved for PHI. Okay, thank you. Jared? We, we also don't have any um, experimentation with a third party at this point where they would be using the data to train a model outside of our organization. Um, also, uh, I, I, again, going back to the example of interaction with customer service, that's where it starts, you know, and I think that's uh, something to observe is uh, that's something to expand rapidly. I mean, that's, that's going to be a game change as it relates to how the interaction improves and matures with, with uh, generative AI. And I think we're seeing the dividends in that in, in these particular spaces right now, but that's only going to grow over time. Um, I'd be curious just with the group though, how, how many have experimented with, uh, Microsoft Copilot? Uh, has anyone used that yet? A pretty, pretty transformative. If you use teams, it actually can transcribe your meeting oh, and we, record we, it. Yeah, we do that. And then it will run it through a generative AI model and give you the meeting minutes. I mean, it's been a game changer. We have been experimenting with that internal to Mayo and you can actually ask it questions. So it'll give you the meeting notes and then you can say, are we missing anything in this discussion? And we'll try to answer those questions too. So I believe uh, we're doing that in Zoom, right? And I believe we're doing that today for this meeting, this conference. So just just saying. So, Very cool. So across the company, we are uh, doing some work with some of the large language model. Um, I, I, to the point here, some of it's for documentation purposes. So some of our provider systems are using the, the um, Nuance product from Microsoft to do passive listening in the exam room. And then it generates at the end of that a, a, a SOAP note, um, a doctor's visit note um, through that generative AI. It's been reviewed by the provider and sent forward. There's a lot of interest in all sorts of the clinical documentation, nurse phone call documentation, all sorts of those things to use generative AI as a part of that process. I think one thing that's scruple-like and one of our big initiatives in um, is in appeals letters. So when a provider is appealing a UM or a prior authorization denial, we now automate through ChatGPT basically the letter to send back to the payer, hey, here's my appeal letter, so that the provider doesn't have to manually dig through the record and, and find that. Um, which makes me laugh kind of because I think it's going to be your bot is talking to my bot is talking to your bot is talking to my bot. And, and um, anyway, uh, you know, more on that later, I guess. Another one that, that is active with a call center, uh, we have huge call centers and one of their, their jobs is to document what happened during the phone call. And that actually takes a fair bit of the call center time, operator's time, the agent's time. So if we can do the same thing we're doing for the providers, have the, have the, um, the, the large language model listening in to that phone call, it then summarizes the call, including things like what was the, emotional context of the person on the other end of the phone that helps us with trending that helps us with training it helps us with all sorts of call center operations and call center efficiency that means that that agent can answer a lot more phone calls because they're doing a lot less documentation that was pretty interesting to, to circular <laughs> scary um I, I like to you know we've we've learned from 
you know, other organizations, some of the things to watch out for. You know, we want to be transparent with the use of AI, concerned with health equity, we're concerned with privacy. And I'd like to talk a little bit about those. Uh, and let's talk about health equity at, you know, to start. In your solutions, uh, how are you uh, gauging how equitable your data is in the models that are, are generated from that? I'll start with Jared. Yeah, I think... Uh, one, of, one of the things uh, Dr. Halamka, the, the president over the platform, would yeah. say is we need to balance you know, technology um, as well as policy and culture. Mm-hmm. And those need to be migrating along simultaneously uh, with one another to be, to be able to have those types of positive outcomes, right? To improve from the bias that we already have um, and not have that seep into these models that we're seeking to streamline and, and make more efficient. Uh, and, you know, Mayo's had a longstanding uh, stance on, you know, safeguarding data as well and managing, you know, the, the way that we interpret and produce studies. And we have the, the fortunate, uh, you know, gift of, of having quite a diverse data set, right? We are, we are national. We have destination medical centers. We have our, our uh, Mayo Clinic health system as well as international. Uh, and so, again, I think it's something that we've already had a strong focus on just from a data perspective, and this only extends to that as we advance with this technology. Okay. Thank you. Eric? Yeah, we, we do have um, standard statistical measures related to uh, fairness and bias in the battery of uh, materials that are presented to committees for discussion around uh, new models. Um, so looking at distributional differences in model outputs by demographic groups, looking at model accuracy by demographic groups, um, so these things get discussed, and there is a lot of nuance there because there can definitely be um, uh, differences between groups that are founded in health disparities that could could impact the the way that models uh, uh, make recommendations for different groups and are founded in biological differences uh, between groups, especially if we're talking about gender groups. Uh, and so having clinical folks as part of those discussions is key as well. Okay. Thank you, Kevin. Yeah, we, we have a series of kind of oversight and, um, and stage gates that we go through, uh, including a, a legal review, um, but we also have a machine learning review board, it's called, and, and part of that um, review board, so the part of that just looks at the quality of your data science and machine learning in general. It also has a subgroup that every process has to go through uh, about the ethical use of AI. And so I think of that a little bit like an IRB process. It's intentionally multidisciplinary. It's intentionally got a lot of different points of view. It's not just data scientists. It's not just clinicians. It's a number of people who look at this and say, okay, is there fairness, you know, is this biased? And, and is it fair? Those are actually two different questions here. Um, my personal opinion is all data is biased. You're always using a subset of data that exists in the world. So you just need to know what your bias is. And fairness um, uh, is something that we have to make a judgment about as, as, as clinicians or as, as people that are responsible for this. Uh, the way I think of fairness is that I don't actually necessarily want to reproduce his, the historical uh, performance. And a machine learning model is designed to tell me, based on past, what should I do in the future? 
well, sometimes I intentionally want to do something different in the future than what I did in the past. Uh, my my system may not have had as uh, uh, much access for African Americans, for example. I don't want that to that um, to just determine what I should recommend in the future. So that is a really important conversation that we have each and every time we think about what that looks like. We think about do we need to adjust the model. Um, but that also gets us to what's the quality of that data? How, for these differences we care about, are we confident that we have really good self-reported data? That, that Do we have enough numbers that we can actually do this kind of analysis? So we're investing now in a health equity data product to really be sure that we are thinking in a multi-dimensional way about do we have the kind of data we need to be able to answer these questions and to and to have an aspirational data set and a way to 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 not just um, do what we used to do and now automate it, but do better than we used to do. I'm going to um, kind of touch on privacy for a moment and um, to talk about a personal experience. A long time ago when I used to work, retired now, um, we used to work on data analytics, right, and work with de-identified data. And the government would require you, you have to at least have, I don't know, 10 instances in this zip code that you can actually report, you know, activity on this particular diagnosis code or whatever. And so, you know, you had to be really careful because if you get too finite, you know, you could be exposing someone's PHI just by inferring, you know, where they live and, and all that. And so, you know, naturally, AI, you have the same problem, right? And, um, you know, we, we had a discussion yesterday about, well, gosh, just add a parameter to the machine learning algorithm to get more specifics on a particular demographic or particular geographic or whatever. And so can you talk a little bit about your discipline when you're kind of exposing your APIs with all those different parameters to make sure that if it is working on de-identified data, that is able to be protective of not going down that, that bad path. So uh, let's go. It uh, looks like Jared's looking at everybody else. Let's start with him. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah, I, I think it, it doesn't go beyond a lot of, of what you just alluded to with, with our longstanding process of, you know, creating a environment from a data perspective uh, with, with de-identified data for the purposes of research, for the purposes of our community partners and all of our other partners. You know, the reason uh, Maya was allowed to be innovative the way that they are with, you know, the world-class care that they deliver is a result of harnessing all this data, but it's also equally important for us to leverage those safeguards um, and again, as it relates to AI, it's, it's, I think it's something that's really helped us propel forward in, in, this, in this regard because it's synonymous with what we're trying to do already uh, in that environment. Okay, thank you. Uh, let's go, Kevin. Um, so I started my work at, at um, Optum four years ago as the CMO of what was called the Optum Labs, which was our research data set that we uh, partnered with academics, including Mayo, for example, is one of our, our key partners. And for that work, we necessarily had a research-ready, de-identified data set with a lot of documentation. We had a lot of those exact same rules in it. Um, when we do our AI modeling, the way my team does it is they start with that de-identified data set and we first build and do a lot of our work there. But because we're ultimately going to be actually um, putting these um, 
uh, recommendations directly into a doctor's office that's in a context, in a clinic with an individual patient, we also then tune it to that uh, local data to be sure that what we've found at the national de-identified space actually still works and performs down at, at the local level. So we have to follow all the, the HIPAA requirements and the data use requirements and, and et cetera when we do that. But it's this is for operations. The model, you know, again, is, is started on the de-identified data set, but we, are, we tune it and to be sure that it's actually going to work when we get it to an identified data set with a particular population. I'll stay with you just for a second, Derek, because you know, you're very complex. You're a provider, you're a payer, you're a vendor, you serve others, you serve other providers, you serve other vendors. Oh, yes. You serve other vendors, right? And so oh, yes. it's pretty crazy, right? So how do you... You know, when it comes to de-identified data, how do you police that at Optum? Um, well, I can speak from my Optum Labs experience. So Optum Labs um, had data on 130 million Americans because we were a qualified entity, so we had all Medicare fee-for-service. We had a UHC commercial claims. The company that used to be known as Ingenix had Humedica data, huge volumes of data. Um, I started the first week of covid believe it or not. And it turns out all of the data we had in Optum Labs was six months old. Uh, and so we were kind of useless during COVID because we were sitting there in six-month-old data and everybody had questions about yesterday, not about six months ago. Um, the reason I mention that is that was the, the run-out time to do all the kinds of matching and um, and and data views to be confident that the data was fully uh, um, uh, fully de-identified. And, and so that was the data set, that is the data set that we make available to outside partners. Um, and again, it, it is almost by design uh, a little bit old because we want, it, we want to be completely confident that we've done everything we need to do to be sure that that data is not identifiable. Okay, thank you. Derek, thoughts on privacy? Yeah, not too much to add. I, I think um, our situation is similar to what Kevin described. It's not there are too many issues in doing in working with the data to, for modeling actually, because the attributes we're using are not ones that are unique or individually identifiable. It's more the use case that it's embedded in. Who are we sharing the outputs with? So if we're sending insights to a provider that's at the individual level, but those are that's information they should be privy to as the provider. What the uh, member's risk is. If it's um, you know, something that we want to like put on a map and show to people, then that can become a problem. If there's you know a very small number of people within a given geography that we're going to be showing a, an aggregate risk level for, that would expose the privacy, expose members' uh, private information. So just have to be cognizant in um, what data we're sharing based on the output of those models. Okay, well, take a how do I say we kind of switch a bit from what you are today to what you could be. So your um, I want you to be centered, you know, no mistake, <laughs> and, and, and clear your mind, right? And, and think about, gosh, maybe five years from now, what kind of cool things would you be doing with AI? And so I will let a volunteer go first, because I know you have to think about that. Well, I'll start. I mean, I, I feel like in, in five years, five to 10 years, my job certainly is going to change a lot because of some of the tools we just talked about. So right now, my team builds a bunch of things for folks around the business, and I think that'll continue. But I think there are also going to be many more um, uh, tools that support business users directly with AI. 
Uh, so we talked about Office Copilot. And there's GitHub Copilot and uh, you know Salesforce and the t- like Tableau Pulse. There are a bunch of tools that change people's workflow through um, su- by supporting it with especially generative AI. And you know it's just starting. So um, in addition to building things for bespoke purposes, I think a, a, an important function of folks working in AI is going to be education and 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 governance of broader use of AI. Yeah, I was having a kind of sidebar conversation with somebody here. Again, this your bot talking to my bot. I, I feel like we still have a, a, we have an electronic system based on a paper model. I really feel like we still talk about documents. We still talk about attachments. We still talk about guidelines as if they are a printed thing. And I'm hoping, and maybe this is the group to help do that, that we can get past that and we're no longer... I'm passively listening. I create a note for you to process. You process it with your NLP engine and you create a letter to send back to me for my AI to read. And then my AI generates a letter for you. It seems like there has to be a breakthrough way that isn't that. Now, what exactly that will be like, I don't know, because we have to trust each other. We have to be able to actually share the right stuff. Um, But I think that that just like when cell phones first started out, none of us predicted what we would be having now, which is a computer in our pocket and on our wrist all the time. I think we're at the place where something like that can happen if we get out of our own way and let it happen. Um, I think we're, you know, being at, at ONC and Meaningful Use, I realized we were recreating a file document structure just in an electronic way because everyone was so invested in files and documents that they couldn't imagine how they could give up a world that wasn't files and documents. <laughs> okay, go ahead. Yeah, I, I would I would agree with with that statement too. I think it's it's hard to imagine where we're going to be. What we're seeing right now is a lot of the practical use cases are. Um, there's all this work that we have to do when it comes to input and summarizing and evaluating. And we're seeing right now that those are very clear use cases in the industry to start with. But I think over time, that interaction between human and AI will evolve and it needs to get to a point where it's a collaboration, where the input from both sides uh, contributes a unique product. You know, right now it's give something, get something back. Um, you know, there, there are mechanisms going on in the background. We don't know what those are. We don't know how to define those. The explainable AI element is still something we really have to think about a lot more. And that's going to help us with our understanding and education on how it evolves. But I think as it relates to even what's near on the horizon, uh, and even thinking about what's going on at Mayo, we are very close to having, you know, an ambient listening generative AI model that'll start filling out the chart yeah. that'll start doing appointment summaries. I wouldn't be surprised if we complete that next year at some point where all the provider has to do is look at the chart, edit it and submit it. Right. And so we have a huge staffing shortage. We have to address that. And that's the clear example we have right now. We're already seeing it again with that co-pilot example I brought up on the admin space. It's quite accurate. Right. But there's still that attended piece. There's that initial simplistic interaction that we see, again, that I think will evolve and mature over time as we see this, this grow. 
It was interesting at a session yesterday, if you were here for EdFX and they talked about uh, their use of AI and Summer Powell, I don't know if Summer Powell's in here today, but he, he said, uh, gosh, you always, you know, in all the Star Trek episodes, you had all these AI models, but you always had a doctor. But the funniest thing about it was in Star Trek Voyager, the doctor was an AI model. You know, so, you know, where were we going to go, right? So, um, you know, I do like the robotic processing automation to be able to react to it and automate things. That, that's, that's a very cool thing. Well, I think that's what's going to help action some of that input, yeah. right, are those other levers. But, you know, we're already seeing opportunities in models where we're democratizing specialty knowledge that is scarce and being able to drive that back to that specialist in a meaningful way, in a way that we can confirm this is the right person that you need to see, we'll get you that appointment. So, um, in one minute each, and you're having all these people here that are working for different companies, what would be the one, one minute of, of giving to these people that you'd like to tell them? And we'll start with Kevin. Um, think about bias and fairness separately. They are two different things. We don't want to just reproduce what we've already done. Uh, I don't know you all that well, so great to meet you. Uh, <laughs> but I, I, I get the sense this is a room of people who are, who are thinking hard about the future and how, how we get to a better way of exchanging information and, and um, uh, you know, working with healthcare data generally. Uh, my, my advice slash request is just don't forget about the present. Like be, be modest about what we can achieve when and, 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 and um, make sure that we're solving problems that people have today as well. I think one of the biggest lessons learned on this journey for me was the importance of educating and bringing everyone along for the journey. So if there's one thing that I would say is, you know, take the opportunity to educate yourself on, you know, the practical application of what we see on the horizon for all of us today. It, the success that we've had is by and large creating that clear understanding uh, amongst all of our uh, collaborators, everyone that we're trying to help enable. If you don't do that, it's not going to be successful. It's not going to integrate. You're not going to see the level of interoperability that you want. Um, I think that's very key. Uh, very insightful from all three of you. Jared, a little surprised with you because I thought you'd want to be the most popular person going <laughs> forward. Right? Um, hey, these guys are pretty cool, right? So please give them a big hand. They're awesome. Thank you. This has been the Collective Voice of Health IT, a weedy podcast, where the healthcare IT community connects, collaborates, and creates solutions for a better health system. Find all our episodes as well as information on our association at our website, wedi.org. Thank you for joining us and be safe.